Hello, this is Saul Luckman. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Conversations on Saul Luckman Uncensored, sponsored by snoozetoawaken.com, resources for lucidity. For more information about my work, including a lot of cutting-edge free content, check out prorising.com. I'm also on Telegram, where I'm lighting it up at t.me slash Luckman, and I'm absolutely crushing it on Substack at soulluckman.substack.com. If you're a researcher, author, influencer, or content creator interested in talking simulation theory and related topics with me on the show, by all means, drop me a line. I'm not a proponent of channeling or the recent reincarnation trap or history denialist psyops, so please keep that in mind. I'm also open to coming on other podcasts as a guest to drill down into what's up in the simulacrum and how we can survive and thrive here. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome one of my recent mentors, Jordan of watersabove.com and the uh, At Waters Above YouTube channel, which is definitely blowing up as we speak. Waters Above combines gematria, numerology, and astrology to decode the financial markets and expose the esoteric metrics that are actually moving the stock market and cryptocurrencies. This unique system reveals a strategy to determine when a bull run or bear market will take place, and simple methods you can apply to take advantage of global economic cycles. You can find more information about his work on his YouTube channel and his weekly Red Pill podcast for his Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash watersabove. He also does a live stream every weekend on his YouTube channel where he discusses so much more than the markets, from expanding our consciousness, mindset, health, and wellness, to deep dives into the esoteric to decode the simulacrum from the middle path, remaining neutral, and welcoming, welcoming all that are seeking to thrive in the matrix. I sounded like you're there, Jordan. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? <laughs> I'm amazing. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I really, I really have been looking forward to this. And I just wanted to start in with a personal question, and maybe that will <laughs> flavor our conversation here. I've taken your mastermind cl class, which was really excellent, by the way. But I still don't Thank think you. I've ever heard you explain the name Waters Above. I, I know you're using the concept <laughs> of, a, of a firmament dome in some of the crypto technical analysis, but are we also talking firmament and vapor canopy stuff a la archaics? Well, uh, that's funny that you bring it up and specifically that term vapor canopy because, well, my channel came out um, probably around March of 2021. And I wasn't aware of Jason's work until I actually spoke with him on a phone call. Um, I had a bunch of people in my community starting to share his uh, stuff with me. And a good friend of mine, Logan, over at Decode Your Reality, did a uh, transmission with him. So uh, I actually have only watched about one of Jason's videos and one of his live streams I actually tuned into. But I've spoken with him more than I've actually consumed his work. So it is funny to to have that crossover and to have that question come up to me specifically regarding the vapor canopy. Um, but where my where my name came from was uh, around 2019, 2020, when I was studying uh, Warner Von Braun and just all the psyops that were going on with with that whole thing, uh, you know, Operation Paperclip, et cetera. And right. Warner Von Braun's tombstone, uh, had Psalm 19.1 on it, basically stating that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork, which brought me back into Genesis and just the beginning of Genesis. It brings up this term firmament, separating the waters above from the waters below. So I just loved the way that sounded. It really resonated with me at the time, not even from a religious perspective, just purely from the esoteric on the gnosis side of, side of things. So it brought together a lot of my study of mythology and bringing it all the way back to ancient Egypt with Newt uh, being this firmament dome and 
cross cultures, cross, you know, ancient uh, civilizations. So yeah, it actually comes from the firmament. That's where waters above comes from. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Does it have anything at all to do with as above, so below? I know we're talking about separating the waters, which would make them appear different. But is there any resonance with that that ancient metaphysical concept, that alchemical notion? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the first time I ever heard somebody bring up that term as above, I think I might have gotten lucky with this because when I heard about it, it had to deal with hermeticism and not actually to do with anything like satanic or negative of any uh, sort. And then I started, I, I used to say that term quite a bit when I share my decodes, because when you decode with numbers, you always mirror numbers. So the mirror or the reflection of it, you could look at it either side by side or as above, so below. And I would say that quite a bit and people would pin it down as some sort of nefarious, dark concept, but oh, no. it just has to deal with, it has to deal with more the reflection of things, um, kind of like the ability to peer into something and see it as an extension of you rather than separation or duality consciousness. So I use it from that term, and I, I actually didn't intentionally go into the naming of Waters Above with that in mind, but that's an awesome question. Oh, that's really, really funny. I have a chapter in my first published book. It was called Conscious Healing, and gosh, it's been a long time now, going on two decades, but I titled the chapter So Below As Above to get at the idea that it's not just a top-down structure, it's an interactive structure, and that we can also infect, affect and, and uh, impact our environment and even the possibly the macro structures through our consciousness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I always follow it up by saying, as within, so without. Because I, like I think that's equally as important. You know, it's not all just about the externalized, the perception that we're getting through these eyes or the pineal gland. There's also something about the the self and considering such. It, it plays a big role in actually the sim simulation uh, theory itself and a thing that's disregarded because people are coming across it for the first time from like the Matrix movie or something like that. Yeah, what you reference, you know, you start off a lot of your your podcasts or your public ones anyway, welcome to the matrix or another day in the matrix. And then let's take the yeah. red pill. So obviously that was, that was a, a formative piece of work for you in some ways, but I hear, I hear you also wanted to go beyond that kind of sci-fi veneer of what the simulation is. Yeah. You know, it's funny how that stuck the welcome to another day in the matrix. Um, and again, it's it's um, because I guess the work of Jason and also shout out to Jason, by the way, uh, over at Archaics. Um, you told me before we got going that you're um, in their community. You communicate with their mods, et cetera. So, yeah, shout out to Jason. But um, I'm actually I had people at believe it or not. I've never been a mod before, but I am now. Now, it's funny because I'm a very immoderate person. So to be a moderator seems like a bit of an one, <laughs> but I'm doing the best I can. Yeah, um, but ever since I had those communications with him, he's there's going to be crossover, right? People coming over from uh, his channel, and they would be trying to say that I just learned about simulation theory. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I have videos from 2019, me saying, "Welcome to another day in the Matrix," you know. So it's just funny, like um, how that all goes. But yeah, it, it's more of an exoteric statement to get people to be kind of aware of where, where I stand on things off the bat. You know, the first five seconds of my videos, you kind of hear me just spilling the beans and it's in a cute little opening, but it, it does hold truth and meaning. I think it grabbed me because I've been on this wavelength for a while. And then I, you know, began listening to your work, both from a, a crypto and, and TA perspective, technical analysis, and from a philosophical and holistic perspective. And I really liked that you, you really returned to this notion of pairing the esoteric with the exoteric for mm. a holistic appreciation of what's going on, certainly in the markets, but also in the world. And I would love for you, if you don't mind, to speak a little bit about this notion. Yeah, it's kind of as a decoder, we get all these little breadcrumbs from the, whether it be the market maker, if you're talking about finances, or it be the, you know, the, the controllers of media, whether it be Hollywood or down to a news story. 
And what I see it as is it's an opportunity for us to analyze the exoteric to decode the symbolism or decode those connections to get the exoteric, to get the esoteric, excuse me. So like you leverage on the popular, you leverage on what is known. And if you don't pay attention to it at all, then you become like sort of caught up in irrelevant things. And the now is the only thing we have. So you're going to have to keep kind of coming back to what's casting spells on the populace today in order to really extract utility for how you could decode and get you know prepared for tomorrow so i try to stay away from the prediction side of things and i try to look at my decoding and how i perceive reality of how much prana is this event extracting from the witnesses and this has been a mechanism of just protecting myself as i become more savvy in my decoding but just as i become a more illuminated individual, you know? And what I mean by illumination is not like this trophy of enlightenment. I actually look at it as my ability to communicate with everyone, regardless of their spectrum of awareness, to be able to have a conversation with all walks of life, with all cultures, um, and not have judgment in the process. I think that's a very important thing for us as more learned, intelligent, et cetera, whatever word you want to throw in front of us. Um, it's important for us to to maybe practice that more, to practice be compact to be compassionate for others um who are so-called asleep, which I don't even use that term anymore, like NPCs or any of that. It it doesn't serve me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Gosh, I could ask you so many questions, but I wanted to comment before I do that, you know, in the the tree of life, the Kabbalistic tree of life, you have an element, one of the sephirah called the Gevura, which is judgment. And I, I bring this up because you're using the Chaldean and the, and the Hebrew calendar and in and, uh, and, and your, um, your analysis. So I, I, I think that there's a connection there. This idea of, of judgment, though, is, a, is a, like a double entendre. It really kind of means, you know, there's the tendency to judge like bad judgment or you know, levying judgment on somebody. And then there is this, this idea of using good judgment or discernment. And I think yeah. uh, for me, the, the process of growing up has been one of learning how to transition from one to the other, less of the bad judgment, more of the good judgment, if you will. Yeah. Well, intuition plays a huge part of all of this, you know, and I think a lot of the time we go against our intuition because we choose to be judgmental. And a lot of the time we, when we step into intuition, sometimes we psych ourselves out because it feels too good to be true on your own right. Humans like being led. The majority of the populace, the collective, they like being led. And when the overarching theme of uh, communications is based in judgment, uh, well, there you go. People just take on the frequency of the collective because that's the more comfortable route. And that happens a lot with uh, new data sets, whatever new thing makes its rounds in the truther community. You know, if there's a new concept that comes around, people have a sort of this fetish for accepting it because it's just novel. And the way stimuli works is we want more, kind of like a heroin addict. I think that's a thing that very few people want to admit about this, uh, you know, kind of wave that we're on coming across new ideas. So for the consumer, I just tell everyone, you know, make sure you resonate and stop believing because when you come across new information or new work, it's so easy to kind of uh, get the next high, if you will, of dopamine by by just believing in some new uh, information, some novel stimuli, when in actuality, it's just an opportunity for you to resonate with it, use your intuition. And that is what you just coined or called the good judgment, I guess. I wouldn't necessarily call it the good and bad judgment, but I think um, that's... A way well, that, that we could have some utility for that idea. That, Jordan, good and bad's fraud yeah. already, right? Yeah. Today, I, I posted on my YouTube uh, community channel, the you know where you can post whatever on your board. Uh, a little quote: "Alternative news was created at least in part as a way to sidetrack would-be free thinker free thinkers with a mixture of half truths and complete bullshit." So that that was my little two cents for today. So you were talking about uh, extracting prana earlier how, how much is an event that we see in the collective extract how much prana is it is it uh, extracting is that is that a um a kind of euphemism for louche probably yeah i i 
I, I look at it as as it's just our life force energy, but I use a smaller word <laughs> called prana. Right. But yeah, it's just our life force energy. And if if that's what people want to call loosh, then sure. Well, I wasn't really saying that they're the same. I would define them as prana being your energy when it's yours and loosh being your energy when it's taken from you. So, um, you know, you're looking at a situation of, people conducting large-scale essentially psyops in the public sphere and using yeah. them to manipulate markets and i would i would say extract people's vital force in many ways and maybe use that to power themselves in some ways perhaps that's how the simulation or what jason likes to call a, a aix artificial intelligence x maybe that's what it uses to power itself up who knows um, but yeah how do you see who these people are who are they yeah so one thing i want to i want to revisit really quickly is whether it be the prana is within you and it's loose it gets converted to that when it leaves you really all i want people to do is take personal responsibility and stop pointing a finger so you decided to give up your prana you yeah. made the ch choice and i i want to make sure we solidify that because you need to take personal responsibility and become the self-reliant man and once you move into that mode of being you start to become more in your natural state which is a flow state and you're no longer playing the victim so the reason why i don't like using the word loose or i don't talk about it uh, at all is because it's very much caught up in this idea where it kind of is a scapegoat to not take personal responsibility, but I, I I know what people mean by it, and I I, I know what you're you were using it more for the semantics of it. So, but I do want to reiterate that that's very important. That regardless of what system we're in, it's you. It's all self, and your self comes back to your mind, and your mind palace designs all of these beliefs, limiting beliefs, and um, ways of perceiving all things. So when you become like centered back in yourself and stop playing victim, you you regain access to that divinity within you, and that makes you something that you know most of us aren't really too comfortable playing that role because it, it requires us to actually stop pointing fingers and look ourselves in the mirror. Um, yeah, yeah, we but what you say about Parker, right? We actually have to take responsibility. I, I bang this drum all the time for listeners that we have to take responsibility for our own energy and for our own lives. And really, what we what we have to do is, it's in some at some level, is is sort of go on a shamanic path. Uh, some of the some shamans, like the Toltec lineage, would say that you have to develop unbending intent. That's your sovereignty, and that's when really you can't be screwed around with anymore. Mm. So I really encourage people to look into those concepts because they're very empowering. 100%. And you asked about they. Well, they exist because you learned about them. So until you learned about them, they had no power. And they became powerful when you're when you learned about them. And that's really what sucks, right? Is like that's the ultimate clear pill. It's to be it's to be, you know, in this position where you go, "Oh damn, I didn't know about the devil until the devil was taught to me. I didn't know about a God until the God was taught to me. I didn't know about Baron Rothschild or George Soros or Bernie Madoff until I learned about them. So they are just whomever sits at the eye of the, the capstone of the pyramid of what we all believe is powerful. And what that actually means at the end of the day is they are the least powerful player because they're just suspended by that belief we have in them the power of that belief so whomever ends up being the so-called they which again i think is a that kind of that kind of conversation uh and what most people want to go down is is pointing out they want to say it's the jesuits it's the bolsheviks it's the zionists it's the you feel me the reason i'm not going to answer that way is because that's that's what this matrix wants out of me that's me giving it my prana and i've decided that i don't i don't really look at it from that angle anymore i have awareness i'm aware of these groups i'm aware of these entities but i believe that it all comes down to the power we elect to them because we don't want to be self-empowered we don't want to come together last thing i'll say is the one thing that i respect about these so-called elites is they have loyalty to their cause we don't and i could prove it 
Because if one or 2% of our global population decided to work with each other, the government would dissolve overnight. The global banking institutions would dissolve overnight. All politicians would lose every you know sense of control that they have over us. So who's really to blame here for the problem? Is it the Knights Templar? Is it the Illuminati? Or is it us not being able to work together? Because that's really the cure to all of this. If there's allegedly 8 billion or 7 billion people on this planet, but 0.00001% of them are part of this royal bloodline, how the fuck are we losing? You see the problem there? I so I just think it it's very normal for the truth or community or whatever they want to call themselves to point fingers. But once we become loyal to each other, that's when the game changes. And right now we're not. It brings up another question, and it's very much related because um, if if one cannot, as it were, point the finger at a group of people, can one point the finger at the system itself? For example, what is the simulation? What's mm. behind it? What is its purpose? What are, what are its operating principles? Yeah. That's amazing um, to consider because the system is built by us. Like our, it's built by our minds. It's built by our ability to extract consciousness from it all. And we, as beings who are seeking this information, you know, we're we're able to tap into this bandwidth with a little bit more. Um, how do I say this? We're willing to sweat a little bit more for it, you know, as as opposed to most people, they they don't have the, they don't want to burn the calories. It would be too exhausting. And I'm sure that a lot of people who listen into these uh, transmissions, if it was to be heard by the average person, they wouldn't have the calories to burn on it, you know? So they would either quickly dismiss it or they would become, they would call it a tinfoil hat or whatever. They would shoot quickly over to being aggressive and, uh, you know, like a barking dog. Um, so whatever I believe or you believe the system is, all I know is that it's here for a reason, and I, I see that reason as as simple as love or fear, if I really wanted to get simple. So if the system is receiving fear, then it is our God. And if it's not receiving the fear, it no longer controls us. So when we perceive the similar, and by the way, I think we are the matrix, like the the sim the simulation isn't outside of us. It's literally our minds. We are the matrix. We are the simulacrum. It's not existent unless we exist. Hey, so Jordan, it's all coming. There's an interview of mine over on Forbidden uh, Knowledge TV that was titled, and it, I was being interviewed, and it's "Are We the Archons?" And it's a it's exactly about this. So please carry mm, on. Awesome. Yeah, you should share that with me um, after this, and I'll check it out. So, so yeah, like my whole, my whole thing is, is I get to decide as the main player character, the Neo, if you will, I get to decide how I want to go about this trip and I could either dance with everyone on this trip, or I could point my sword at people on this trip. Um, I could do it all for love or I could do it all for winning the game. So most people are doing life for outcomes. They're doing life to based in competition. And and I know people might disagree or they might think that competition is good. But my, my whole point here is you ask anyone who's on their deathbed or you ask a billionaire what they regret about that, about that, the choices they made to, to focus on the material and wealth, you get them on their deathbed and they all say the same thing. They wish they didn't look at life as much like a game. So what I, you know, kind of my my way of expediting to my own truth is to say, well, we're not in an actual game. We choose to play a game that doesn't exist. It's a it's a game of belief. And as long as we play that game, it's essentially getting our prana free of charge. Now, whether the god of that game is Donald Trump or the god of that game is the Argentinian soccer team or the god of that game is Andrew Tate or the god of that game might be some other YouTuber, you know? It, it really doesn't matter. It's just when do you become the main character in your game? And when you make that decision, you start to see that there's other important things in life. So we could really drive down this you know, path in infinite directions. But for me, whatever the system is, I think it is self-contained and it's within you. And it's until we admit that, 
we're probably going to have a lot of finger pointing along our journey. Yes, I would agree. And that's, that's really where I was coming from when I, you know, when I uh, spent time theorizing about our relationship to the simulation. And ultimately I've concluded that, you know, there's, you either, you either accept the notion of oneness in all of its with all of its implications or you you still exist in duality so if there is oneness then you are everything you everything is emerging through through you in some in some perhaps fractal way but it's very much part of you otherwise you're in a an adversarial reality that you're choosing to invest with your consciousness your imagination and it was shown to us in the matrix movies too Again, exoteric. It was out there for everyone to see. It's a very, very famous movie. But the scene that I'm talking about is, I believe it's at the end of the third Matrix where Neo has this like epic battle against Agent Smith. And it's just so ridiculous, like above and beyond. And then it finally gets to this point where Neo realizes that what's keeping him stuck in that trap, that whatever title you want to you know, put to that concept, what's keeping him stuck in that loop is the fact that he's fighting. He's fighting against something that is imaginary. It's his shadow. Yeah, so when himself. he stops fighting, exactly. When he stops fighting himself, he becomes the Christ. That is literally the moment. Yep, that's and really profound. Yeah, yeah. So the other beautiful part of that movie is he starts sacrificing everything for Trinity. Trinity embodies love. So he learns so many great lessons in his journey, right? And I love the part where he first takes the red pill and he starts to become liquid mercury, right? So when you study, when you study the, and, it, and it's through the mirror. So mercury is about markets, right? It definitely does come to finance, but a deeper, it goes connecting back to Thoth, which is thought, which is wisdom. He's considered a God of wisdom. Hermes. Um, and it could precisely. And this is just so fascinating how this movie showed you all of this, and it just takes the eye to see. But that's how his journey starts off. He takes the red pill, which again, it's all just, it's duality, right? They want you to think that the red pill is better, but it's not. It's that he decided to take the choice to go on this path. And the choice is the chosen one. It's not the one who waits around to be chosen. Neo put in the work to eventually get to that position he was in. And although it was synchronistic in a sense, when it got to him, he decided to risk it all for that. There was a great risk in it. So the bigger point here is that getting back to what we were talking about before about fighting this infinite battle with this idea that this is your enemy when it's not, it's just a test. And if you want to keep doing it over and over again, well, that that's the vicious loop. And it's never going to be solved with fighting. It, it gets solved by allowing or realizing. And I think that was what happened with Neo at that moment. He realized, oh, damn, I'm literally shadow boxing right now. I mean, you could say that was his epiphany. That was that was the manifestation of, of the God self. I mean, that's kind of what epiphany is, is talking about, the appearance of yeah. God. And um, that's when it happens. And it's like lightning. So compared to just the taking of the red pill, the red pill was just small fry compared to that moment. Exactly. Yeah. Your, your, your awakening process is very similar too, right? Like it happens for a lot of people. I, I asked this question when I first started my YouTube. YouTube channel and maybe you, you could try it sometime too it might be interesting to see what your community says but i asked everyone what was your red pill moment and it was just to you know just for fun i like that uh yeah it was just for fun and i collected the data after like a week or so and it was like 80 percent of people said it was 9 11 and uh i i know why i know why it was 9 11 and it's funny because as people learned about it initially which was probably i don't know 10 years before i made my youtube i mean a long time before i made my youtube channel people were deciphering uh the 9 11 stuff those 9 11 conspiracy theories they were coming out like within a year of that event you know isn't, pretty isn't pretty amazing coders the cut their teeth i mean that's really what they cut their teeth on right uh probably just probably yeah that, that that one thing was such a, a, a litmus test for people yeah so i've talked about this several times that although you guys hate the new world order and you you know think that they're this like enemy of yours or whatever um 
that was the moment that allowed you to have a very, very explosive stream of consciousness enter you and you allowed it. You actually allowed yourself to become uncomfortable for a moment. You decided to jump into the pool of ice. Congratulations. So whilst most people were taking it, you know, like it was a tragedy, you have people who live in like Canada who don't have a single friend that lives in New York, no, no connection to it. They were, they were somehow able to astrally project into that event and, and feel the pain. And this is what the so-called elites do best is they create an environment where you no longer feel your own pain. You just accept every, every all the other pain, even with events that happened a hundred years before you were even here. They'll do this with slavery. They'll do this with the World War II Holocaust, the every, everything. So we really need to wake up to this, that every time something happens, it's an opportunity for you to mine consciousness from it. And whenever you feel yourself feeling pain of something that isn't actually in your reality, that is a sign that you're you're literally, it's like a sign of psychopathy in a way, no offense, but that, that literally is what it is. And I think there's a Leo Tolstoy quote where he says, um, something about feeling other people's pain versus feeling your own pain and how when you feel pain, you're human. And when you feel other people's pain, you exist. And like, it was pretty profound to think of it from how you're alive when you feel your own pain, but when you numb your pain and then all you do is feel other people's pain through, through whatever mechanism that's happening, you, you're not even alive anymore. You're literally a zombie. You're, you're, what makes you seem alive is the slight animation of your movements, but you have no access to your own prana because you're just living off of the, the external, you know, you're following the blood trail. So if so much out there in the public sphere, if so much about our so-called history, if so much about our science is all just based on falsehood, we're talking storytelling, narrative, fictionalization here. How can you yeah. use that information to predict what's going to happen in the so-called real markets? Now, I'm, I have an idea of what you might say because I've been following your work for a while, but this it struck me as a, an interesting question for uh, a lot of newbies. Yeah. So, um, well, markets are all held together by fiat currency, which is money that's created out of thin air. So this actually makes the game easy. You could just quickly assume that there's a mechanism moving it all. And it's not based in reality because the currency that it's backed by isn't real at all. It's it's a belief system again. The same reason the dollar and money have uh, power is the same re reason that Joe Biden has power. It's because we believe in it. So I came to these you know realizations very early and it started to make me um, go back and analyze big events in the in the market you know as a decoder i started seeing there's a cyclical nature to the way markets behave and that brought me to the hebrew calendar it brought me to looking at some cycles uh there's a hundred year cycle 50 year cycle seven year cycle so i started to identify these cycles and then i made a really um profound connection to this uh seven year cycle called the shemitah and that's probably what most people would hear me talking about in my work because we just we just experienced a Shemitah year um, and they come around once every seven years. So they're really powerful. But a quick uh, rundown for people who are unaware. And seven years before this recent Shemitah was back in 2015, 2017, the Asian markets crashed. Seven years before that, we had the housing market crash. Seven years before that, we had the dot-com bubble crash. Seven years before that, we had the bond market crash. Seven years before that, we had Black Monday. It was a historic market crash where we saw even one of the main um, uh, bank banking institutions fail, uh, Rothschild. Um, so you just keep doing this over and over again. Uh, State of Israel was founded in, uh, during a Shemitah year. It, all of these big events, including global wars, uh, change of empire power, uh, you know, new currency being the standard, it's always on these Shemitah years. So I started to make that connection and it prepared me for the recent one. And that was when I started my YouTube channel and we've kind of been tracking it since. And another thing I identified, which is very important, which is that there's a 50 year cycle, which is seven cycles of seven Shemitah years. 
And this is called Jubilee. And this is a biblical concept. All of this, by the way, is going back to the Torah. Uh, so it's not like waters above is making this up. This is happening, being practiced in uh, the exoteric. So Anyone could go look it up. Jubilee, Jordan, what what crashed, what just yeah. crashed this time? Because last year was the um, the the Shemitah year, so so we came through that. So if we've had all of these major crashes, what what I mean was yeah. it was crypto the crash this time? What, what correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, crypto. So the the basic example here would be cryptocurrency, which a lot of these altcoins, so anything that isn't Bitcoin, pretty much lost eighty five to ninety eight percent of its value in one year. And if you look at the market cap losses of cryptocurrency, it was a trillion dollars. This is not chump change. So crypto crashed, um, but also the stock market um, had some bigger corrections for sure. Um, but I got to admit that we're not there yet. We still have some time to go because, and that kind of segues us into the Jubilee, if you want me to yes, build, uh, build yep. off of that. Yeah. So the reason um, this Jubilee concept is so important is because it comes around once every 50 years. And um, another thing that I've studied before I go into the Jubilee is that when we have a Shemitah end, it takes about one year after it ends for the stock market to, to reach its bottom. So we have Rosh Hashanah around September every year, uh, the Hebrew New Year. And the Shemitah ended back in September of 2022, which means that we're not out of the woods yet until September um, of 2023, and we're only in January right now. Mm -hmm. So there is so much more time for these markets to continue down. And um, there's been cycles in the past that are really lengthened for these so-called bear markets where you can see 10, 20 year, uh, like the Great Depression, for instance. But uh, that's a different cycle. To get back to the Jubilee, I identified that in the early 1970s, we had a very similar kind of like repeat in, in the energy of how markets are, geopolitical events, just like everything that I could possibly uh, analyze and decode was pointing me to the early 70s. So for anyone who's not aware, in 71, we had the Nixon shock. That was really important event with regarding finances. And then we went into the 1973-1975 depression. So I've been calling in my work that I anticipate um, this recent cycle to be similar to that. And um, so far, it's been amazingly similar. Like I'm talking to the astrological events, such as eclipses that were happening after the end of the Shemitah, bringing in massive market corrections. And because we have crypto now, and we didn't have crypto back then, you kind of have to look at these markets like they're just handing off the baton one thing at a time to the new to the new thing. For instance, in the early uh, the late 1990s into early 2000, we had that dot com boom, all these promises coming from these technology companies, huge market crash. But then what prevailed from it, the top dogs, some of the blue chip stuff, were some of the most mind blowing uh, investment opportunities of all time tons of upside even after those big crashes and during that time they built these narratives i mean there was narratives about amazon being a scam and you look at the charts of amazon and if you look at that crash compared to where it is today if you believed it was a scam you missed out on a life-changing investment opportunity so there is so much to this where they have these narratives in the public sphere kind of the exoteric stuff to drive your emotions and then there's the truth so when I when I started, you know, getting into this this deep dive of decipher, you know, decoding the markets, I just put everything from the mainstream on mute. I disregarded everything and I created my own system of analyzing these markets with my metrics. But what was most important about all of it was the fact that these seven year cycles come around like they only come around once every seven years. So if you don't take action, um, you could be really, you know, I don't want to tell people that they have to like FOMO into these markets right now, but it's just a really big opportunity. And we have 100 plus years of data in the stock market to prove what I'm saying. So even if you don't believe in crypto, you could apply the same information to a company's stock that you believe in. So Again, not financial advice, but missing out, right? So fear of missing out. So you don't have to be fear driven to try to get your piece of the pie. Is that what you're saying? 
Correct. And I think that's what happens and why most people fail at investing because they wait until the market is bullish and they get in too late. And when the market is really bearish and really negative and people are just upset and depressed, it's the best buying opportunity. And this is nothing new. You know, these Rockefellers were talking about buying when there's blood in the streets. They weren't lying. Yep, that's that's exactly what they've always, 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 always done. So we're at that moment right now where we still have opportunity. Um, that's exciting for people who have uh, <laughs> a sophisticated investment thesis. I'm not telling people who know nothing to go just jump in, um, but this is a good time to educate yourself. It's a great time to get um, to pay attention, especially in this hyperinflated environment. Because why do you think the elites get into investing um, the way that they do? It's to it's to outpace this inflation thing. They don't use savings accounts. That's for us. <laughs> Right. They don't use CD. They don't use CDs. They don't care about certificate of deposit. That's chump. That's nothing. They have a long game they're playing. It's called investing, not trading. And that long game they're playing outdoes the inflation rate substantially every single cycle. And they play these cycles exactly the way I teach it. They get out at the sixth year, and then they rebuild on the eighth. And they play that seventh year speculatively, according to the way they manipulate it with sentiment of the retail the retail gets in on the seventh year the worst fucking year and retail is people buying it just just small small investors buying often with fomo who are not institutional investors and they're not uh, heavily moneyed they're just jumping in to try to uh, ride a bubble essentially exactly they get in when it's exciting which is it's like imagine you went to a, a national park um, in the summer, you're going to have to deal with a lot of tourism. It's probably not going to be as fun. It's going to be a lot of lines you're waiting on, tons of people in your pictures. You want to go when it's not exciting. You want to go at a time where it's a little bit calmer, you know? So the market does the same thing. A bull run is much shorter than a bear market. Um, and another thing to mention is the bear markets in crypto are very short lived comparatively to the bear markets in the stock market. So, we're at a turning point right now. We're, we're watching the whole economy itself switch blockchain. And that's a reason why in my work, I pay attention to it. Because if you want to excel at something, you can't get lost in shiny object syndrome by looking to 20 different things at once. It's like if you want to get really dialed in, you have to pay attention to one thing and master it. So there's too many people, uh, especially on the seventh year. <laughs> Getting back to this idea, on the seventh year, they start looking at Forex and precious metals trading and leverage trading this and NFTs. And they start looking in 30 different directions and they never make a good move because when it's exciting, brother, it's everything's exciting. Right. <laughs> so it's like the ultimate distraction and then you add the sentiment and it's just chaos. It, it never <laughs> bodes well. Uh, it never bodes well. Um, so my advice to everyone has always been buy the boredom, buy the blood. Boredom especially. When this market is boring, oh man, it's the best time to buy. And you can use a variety of strategies to do that. And you teach you teach these. I mean, one is dollar cost averaging, where you where you spread out your risk over multiple days or weeks or months as you purchase more of something in a bear market. Is that a fair way of describing it? Absolutely. Imagine you're like replacing what your company or your your uh, yeah, the like company you'd work for would do with like a 401k. Like don't let your company run or manage your money like i having the retirement standard retirement plan is exactly why nobody ends their careers in being an employee uh rich but if you took the same amount of money that you normally let your company manage for you in these 401ks or these retirement plans and you independently invested it in the s&p 500 most people along a 30-year time horizon would have probably a minimum of one to three million dollars. Yeah, that and that would be available capital, not capital that your gov that your government allows you to get paid back to you in small increments like a lunch like lunch money. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't imagine being 70, 80 years old and getting lunch money for a career that was 30 years long. Yeah. So yeah, dollar cost averaging is almost the it's almost the same concept, but you do it 
personally instead of allowing an institution to oh another thing to bring up um alongside this this idea is hedge funds are actually like a counter indicator hedge funds never perform well well so that's really funny too when you look at hedge fund performance they get involved near the end of these cycles these guys are <laughs> they don't know anything because they're college educated but they go deep into the FOMO, they go chasing the market, and that's that's a recipe. Yeah, because they're just making commissions, brother. They don't give a shit about you making money. <laughs> they're there for the commissions. They're there to make money off of you and being a custodian for you. See, the thing is, I preach self-reliance. I preach people when people find my work, I don't want them I don't want them to perceive me as a predictions guy or, you know, making call outs. I'm here to teach people skills. And I'm trying to make people self-reliant with their investment plan, you know, because that's really what gives you the power. And I'm just there as, you know, a voice in the background whenever you want to come around and sharpen those skills, sharpen those tools. But I don't want anyone to be relying on me. So I try to tell people, you know, this education that that we're sharing, it's a, it's a very big opportunity for people to prevent themselves from allowing other people to to take control of their finances. And, and that's where the hedge funds come into play. It's because people are lazy. People just rather give their money or give you know everything over to somebody else and have them do it, but they never want to put in the work to develop the skill. It's like um, thinking you could pay a personal trainer to get a six pack. Like That's funny. <laughs> the six pack happens when you start working out effectively, when you kind of cut back on the foods that were making it so you couldn't have this you feel me you yeah. it's about your it's about the small choices you're making on an everyday basis that are compounding it's not the personal trainer that's helping you so uh, let me ask you um you know you were speaking to a number of questions that i have and and two of them are along these lines uh one is you know could you elaborate on the concept of an investment thesis and why it's important and could you also tell somebody like me, for example, who's not an expert in these markets, even though I have followed Bitcoin since it began, and I've been looking at this for a long time, oh, wow. I've never gone into it the way you, I mean, you have a deep and profound knowledge of this. It's clearly, you're clearly in your Dharma here, and it's really, really cool. <laughs> but why would somebody like me spend time developing an investment thesis when I could get on your Discord and buy what you're buying when you're buying it? <laughs> I mean, and also, no, like, honest, like, no, like an honest, because I could spend years trying to get to where you are and still not be there in this particular area of study. Mm. So, yeah, a huge part of the a huge part of the investment thesis is being aware of what dollar cost averaging is, being aware of why it is so uh, important to consider this instead of just going all in, which most people do. Clearly delineating the behavior that that separates the gambler from the investor. You know, those are all the foundational uh, principles of getting to develop a more sophisticated investment thesis. You actually do not need to learn how to read a chart. You don't need to know TA. Um, in order to become uh, self-reliant in these markets, you could use somebody like me to just follow along and, and develop those basics with my free YouTube videos every week. Um, but when it comes to knowing when to buy, knowing when to sell, that has a lot more to do with your personal um, goals. So I, with my, um, I actually created an exit strategy blueprint, which is included in my crypto uh, mastermind course. So I know you said you had that. That's At the it. very end, there's a, there's an exit strategy, and I teach people an exit strategy and how they could develop it based on what their goals are and where they want to be, you know? So a lot of the time when people are developing um, exit strategies or a plan for selling, right? Because it's not about all about when you buy, you eventually you're going to sell, right? And you need to know when to do that. The reason why most people never, ever sell is because they're waiting around for someone to tell them to sell. And the market makers of the news, the mainstream media regarding finances, they're never going to tell you to sell because they make money off the exchanges by just keeping you locked in the game. So one of the things that I learned is that if you don't have a plan in place for yourself and you're waiting around for someone else's plan, like you're, you're, you're never going to really take much action that, that benefits your life. So 
I can break this down in several ways, but it would have to do with one, your cash flow situation, two, um, the amount of savings you have, and three, uh, what you want to be doing with your life. Because some people don't want to work. Some people want to be entrepreneurial, and uh, it might take $50,000 for them to break free from the current job they have to having the, the capital to maybe ease into a, a business model. Well, there you go. We got 50K as our goal. So let's work there and let's design an investment thesis based off that 50K. How much cash flow are you getting in every week? Where what's how how net positive are you? You know, these are the things that I consider. So I'll I'll tell you right now, brother, when I I used to take calls for people with portfolio managed like portfolio reviews, I no longer do it. I take consultation calls uh, still, but it, it actually people are more attracted to talking to me about like the consciousness side of things, less about the finances, which I'm really um, grateful for because I love talking about that stuff. But whenever I talk to people about the finances specifically, the first question I ask them are, is, "What are your numbers? Like, how much are you making? How much are you spending? Uh, where are you at?" And they they can't answer me. <laughs> and I'm like, well, there's our problem. Like, you don't even know. It's like playing darts with a blindfold on and somebody spins you around the room and you're like, okay, I'll go for it. So if you don't even know what you're aiming at, if you don't know what your target is, then, you know, you probably shouldn't even be booking calls or looking for mentors. Well spoken. And and you you were very clear on all of that. That that was that was super helpful. Um, you know, I, I know that it was a, it was helpful to me and I've even been in your material. So I, I can imagine for other people it would be very helpful indeed. Um I know we don't have much more time. I don't like to take these much over an hour, and, and I really want to be respectful of your your time. So I guess where I would love to give you a little bit of a platform here at the end is just to talk about where you see things going. I know that you, and I'm, this, this is not really a forecast. I'm not asking for dollar amounts necessarily or anything like that in terms of price points or whatever, but could you give us yeah. a picture of the flow of the crypto markets over the next, let's say 12 months? How do you see this flowing in a very general way and what's going to be driving it? And are there any other related dynamics that are not crypto related and maybe not even finance related that you kind of see happening mm, yeah yeah for sure so um for one there's two really important eclipses that are coming up in april and in may so i believe based on the cyclical nature of these markets we're gonna have a repeat of what happened back in 2018 into 2019 um, and that's going to be a relief rally in the market. So in English, between March into April, the market is going to be probably very bullish. And then after that event, we're going to have eclipses in October. And that eclipse, I believe, will bring downside. So that aligns perfectly on what I shared earlier about how one year after Rosh Hashanah, the end of the Shemitah, excuse me, we have... Uh, bearish market activity. So this is the first couple quarters of the year we should be moving up. And then the final two quarters of the year, we should move down into the uh, probably before like Thanksgiving time before the the late November. And then at 12 months away, like exactly a year away, we should be in a process of starting to recover from wherever that bottom is. And I think there's probably going to be an event that happens this year, and it would be more likely to happen around the October eclipse. I can't really put my finger on specifically what it would be because I'm spending so much of my like energy on decoding what I pay, what I'm focused on. But yes. if I had to, if I had to create a theory, I think it would probably be around um, hyperinflation. I think we're probably going to see a squeeze where we 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 see these household items continue to go up a lot in price basic foods and necessities they're going to start to get very expensive and uh energy could even start becoming quite expensive again like i'm uh, and i'm speaking for the united states by the way so again if you're uh, you might have listeners who are around the world so just take what i'm saying generally for wherever you are but i i think for the most part we're going to see europe uh australia new zealand canada america just watch prices of food go up slowly keep going keep going to a point where people start making um sacrifices you know, and those sacrifices come with um, just change in behavior. And whenever we start to see people have to make a choice between food and, uh, 
you know, their internet, they might choose the internet. I know that sounds fucked up, but <laughs> we're really addicted. We're really addicted to this shit, you know? So we live in a weird world right now where I think people are going to choose like, okay, I'm going to get super holistic on this response. People are going to be making choices that would like favor transhumanism over like an organic, real, wholesome life. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a little bit of darkness to it, but the light side of it is that the people who are listening to this transmission, you know, you really need to focus on relationships right now. You guys got to focus on assessing the value of the people in your life because when shit gets weird, when the world gets volatile, um, you're going to watch this all change, you know, like metamorphosis. And if you're not willing to put in the work to become the butterfly and you want to stick in that that chrysalis with everyone else, well, then it's going to be dark for you too. So the specific answer is I, I see hyperinflation in food probably going to continue and it's not going to be fun. Um, and that changes behavior and that, that might increase things like crime. Uh, you know how it goes. Once shit gets expensive, people start getting a little wacky. You know, Jason does a kind of predictive analysis based on what he calls isometrics, and it's looking at nodal dates and, and going forward and backward from those dates. Yeah. And he is uh, essentially predicting something like a fake or a false Carrington event in September or possibly October, where it would be like a partial internet takedown, and then they would bring it back up and some of it would be gone. Like people they don't want on there might be gone and that kind of thing. And And he's... So when I spoke with him on the phone one time, it sounded like he was looking for that to happen sooner. Um, is he saying that that is going to happen in September 2023? Yeah, he, that's what he's always been saying about this particular thing is this Carrington. Oh, okay. 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 Awesome. September uh, into October. So it, it, it definitely mm -hmm. is within the uh, ballpark of your of your timeline. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I don't know uh, the idea of this. Um, I, I suppose exoterically, would people call this like an EMP? What would they, well, what the would the government they, call the this? The way they could play this is that it's a solar flare. It's an EMP, some kind, oh, yeah. of, some kind of weird move. Yeah. They've been preparing people with all the solar flare data and all the scaremongering about the infrastructure, et cetera, for a very long time. And they've also been transitioning everything to EV, electric and wind. And if there were some kind oh, of yeah. Carrington event, it would get weird for all of those systems. And so, uh, anyway, it's kind of it's kind of like planned failure, planned obsolescence. And so, you know, things yeah. go down, but they, but lo and behold, they manage to save people's bank accounts or whatever. They, the financial system can keep going, but now we're going to move it onto the blockchain fully because we yeah. can't have another one of these. Yeah, and he's he's saying this September 2023 is what he's and what maths is he using to get to this? He's using his algorithm Ophis, which he developed, which is the Ophis is a as a kind of play on the the an ancient word for snake, which was the seer, was the ability to see in mm -hmm. the future, and it's this uh, program yeah. that uses about six different algorithms that he developed that um, he's uh, he's plugging all this into. So if you take like the Carrington event, when that happened back in the 1800s, when the telegraph went down and you mm -hmm. look forward through these nodal points, or at least at one good nodal point, then you end up at September of 2023. Yeah, I need to talk with Jason again because he has a very interesting uh, utility for, these, for this math equation and I feel like collaborations on this could be very helpful for the world. Um, but I, I, with the I, idea your first interview with him, and I thought you guys should do another interview, you know? Yeah, we did two podcasts. Um, and then I think there was some discrepancy between people who followed my work and his work saying that I said something about him or whatever. But like, yeah, it's just people being dramatic. Um, but I reached out to him via email after I heard that news because somebody who's really close to me in my community uh, who loves both of our work uh, shared that with me. And I reached out to Jason to just be like, hey, man, like, here's where I stand on things. And um, I haven't heard back from him, but maybe someday me and him could collaborate again because uh, I feel like this stuff is fascinating, uh, you know, different ways of going about our decoding process.
Yeah, I think it's really cool too, and it gives you kind of a, a panoptical approach to to this um, this data, where you look at it from all kinds of different angles, different vantage points. I think that's very valuable. And when you have when you have multiple correlations going on, then that's a kind of that's something to really pay attention to. Absolutely, and and one thing I um I'm really curious about is what's the preparation for some for this event? Like, well, how would one prepare for an internet shutdown i mean i can tell you what he's I mean, doing i can tell you what i'm doing and you know my, that might yeah no I, i'm i'm just i'm interested take, like, i'm interested because bags, for example back up all of your back up all of your material right you can put you can put uh, mm -hmm. thumb drives or laces you know uh, external hard drives in faraday bags sure that's just kind but, of whoa. duh but how would that how would this event be able to wipe out stuff and somehow that Faraday bag protect it? Because the only thing they would be it would not be a real external event. It's a fake Carrington event. It's going to be mm -hmm. someone flipping switches behind the scenes on the whole internet. They control this yeah. is a DARPA project from the beginning. So all of that stuff is probably just built in from the ground up. So they can do whatever they want. Yeah. And when they do that, they'll make it look like an EMP or a massive solar flare. It took down mm -hmm. a lot of our grid. It caused a lot of problems. People will absolutely believe it because they didn't have air conditioning or whatever, you know, for a while. I mean, right down, right? Yeah, there's it a lot to blame. Up. And then, and then everyone's a little freaked out because of the fragility of the infrastructure. So when they want to, if they really want to roll us over on into a, a, dif a different um, financial system, that's a golden opportunity to do it. So you can protect yeah. your own data by using Faraday <laughs> cages, and in the case of crypto, using cold storage. Yeah, which I promote. I think this is a fascinating concept. The only thing I wonder is uh, if they were to fuck around with people's bank accounts, that's not going to bode over well for keeping uh, everyone at uh, chill. You know, people get very, very snippy. I mean, even recently, Bank of America had some issues, and people just showed up at their local bank. Uh, you know. Getting, so I'm, getting belligerent. I'm suggesting that they won't fuck around with the bank accounts per se, that those things will actually yeah. be left intact. Maybe they'll look like they're gone, but then they'll bring them back up and people will be like, oh, yeah. God, they managed to save it. And the, and the banksters will be like heroes in this case. And people will put their yeah. absolute faith and trust in these people because they were able to navigate this crisis and get to the other side of it, whereas other systems failed. Right. Well, man, I mean, this is really, this is a, a incredible theory and um, maybe we could get together for round two in the future. Maybe I could get together with Jason, uh, talk with him a little bit more about this. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, definitely, I mean, I definitely fascinating. Um, I, I will, um, I will try to make a note here. I'll make a note right now uh, to just put the Carrington event in uh, the notes for this show. And because I got interviewed, um, I got interviewed recently, and I'm sorry if you hear any noise in the background. Um, but I, I got interviewed recently by somebody who's very uh, focused on XRP specifically, that cryptocurrency, and I told them that I had a theory that it would it would need some chaos in the banking system. We would need some destabilization, some sort of event. Uh, what would what would bring the whole market down? But then it would create a recovery event specifically for XRP that could be really positive. Um, I, call, I, and, that. Uh, it, I thought I thought of this yeah. scenario. So, so it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting what you brought up because now I'm seeing like, oh, damn, there might be some like that was an intuitive feeling I had based on my information about one year after the Shemitah, the fact that in October we have the eclipse. I mean, just all this stuff that I've been bringing up in my work independently. And then I brought up that idea to that guy and I have more people reaching out. But then you brought this up to me now and I'm like, oh, shit, that's pretty fascinating that Jason's coming along the same timeline as me. So what he's not saying is that it's necessarily going to be an insurmountable tragedy for your finances. In fact, if you know it's coming and know maybe what's going to be going down, you could play it in such a way as to when there's blood in the streets, that kind of thing, you could really make a lot of money. Yeah, that's what I've been telling everyone to pay attention to this April and May because it would be a de-risking opportunity because I don't trust the end of this year. Like if I have the opportunity to de-risk any current investments that I have in this extremely speculative market, in the most speculative asset class, I need to take 
advantage of that knowledge. So I've been telling everyone, like, you don't want to fuck around with your active portfolios if we do get a bullish push up, because you might not see recovery in this market for five to 600 days. So what's the point of sitting on the sidelines when you had an opportunity to to de-risk and uh, you know secure some of this secure secure some of this because it's a very volatile market. That's I hope that makes sense. That's that is a, it makes a lot of sense and I've been asking myself exactly this this type of question and that's actually probably a good place to um, you know to conclude this discussion with a little bit of uh, advice as it were not financial advice but just philosophical advice for people to ponder as they move into April and May. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially especially for those who are uh, interacting with Jason's work and feel like that maths adds up to something that has significance for that time frame. Because there you go, you have two references to come to a conclusion on that says, well, this is probably not the most positive time. So if I could get prepared, you know, how many months would that be? Right, it's almost four months before. Like, damn, you know, you, you not only are you de-risking, but you could be doing other things, like you know, getting just getting yourself situated, perhaps with some materials, paying off debt. I don't know, um, but I agree. I do think there's going to be some sort of event. I'm not calling a Carrington event, not not that, but I think there will be some sort of thing that triggers chaos so that they could have a thing to push us into this new financial system. So maybe take note of that and we could um, have a part two interview in the future, kind of talking a little bit more on that. Yeah, let's try to do that maybe uh, maybe in April or something as we're moving into the eclipse season and we will have a little more data to go on. Absolutely. That sounds great, man. Well, listen, I've, I've given out all your coordinates. I will I will uh, include those in the show notes so people will definitely be able to find you. And uh, let's uh, let's just do it again in April. Beautiful. I really appreciate you having me on and shout out to your community. Wishing you guys a beautiful rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Take care, brother. Take care. Bye.